friends. Welcome to Doing Theology and Thinking Mission. I am joined by Jackson and Carrie. Hello, Jackson and Carrie. It's great to be with you again for another episode of Doing Theology, Thinking Mission. And today, our conversation centers on a word we often uh, use in our work, and it's the word contextualization. <laughs> so, uh, Jackson, you've written quite a bit on this concept, the practice of uh, contextualization, uh, the importance of contextualization. And uh, I know there are some controversies surrounding this word and this practice. Uh, it scares some people. So we're going to dive in uh, today. And um, why don't we begin with what you consider to be some common understandings of contextualization. Sure. Uh, typically, evangelicals will call uh, any attempt to communicate the gospel in a relevant way contextualization. That's, that's a... I mean, that, that's just saying it kind of broadly, um, but uh, it's seen as the you interpret Scripture and then you contextualize it. So you apply it to a context or you try to communicate in terms that people will understand. Th those are the most common ways of explaining it, but uh, very frequently people link contextualization with syncretism as if those were synonymous. So for some people, contextualization is not doesn't have a positive meaning. Yeah, I think I have heard that over and over again, people being very fearful of contextualization. And I actually, I, I saw a clip of John Piper teaching, and this is not to throw John Piper under the bus, but this is a, a teaching about 12 years ago, and he said very clearly, the gospel needs no contextualization. Some people make missions just so complicated, endless discussions about contextualization, and then he goes on to say, you know, the gospel's relevant without any contextualization. And he he goes to say that we have to share the gospel, right? But he says you need barely any contextualization. You've got to learn the language, words like father, man, origin, and that's it. Mm -hmm. So basically he's really whittling it down to contextualization being a, well, just learn the appropriate words for these things. Mm. But that there is a maybe a formula is maybe too strong, but there there's there are steps along the way that should happen regardless. Now, I think we probably all agree with that to a certain sense, but I'm not sure we would agree with the statement that gospel needs no contextualization. Yeah, uh, I've seen that clip. It's like a four minute clip. I think it on YouTube, something like literally the gospel needs no contextualization or something like that. Uh, people could Google that. And what he seems to miss is that everything he's saying itself is a contextualization. Right. It, it's right. a it's a Western contextualization. It doesn't make it untrue. It just means that it's he what he was communicating is uh, a contextualization of biblical truth in a way that people can understand. Right. Um, so fair enough. One issue I would have uh, with people who object to contextualization and kind of link it with syncretism is the goal is not to make it relevant because he's right. The gospel is always relevant, but it is not always meaningful to people when they hear it. Right. And so if I said, uh, if there's a fire and I'd say, Man zai jelly, I just said, the door is here in Chinese. 
Well, what I said is very relevant to you if we're on fire, but it's not meaningful to you. Mm -hmm. And we're not just talking about language in terms of like what's the Chinese or Russian or Portuguese word for this or that. But there are concepts and ideas that have meaning, that carry significance. And that's where we get more and more into what contextualization is and isn't. So in other words, what I hear you saying, Jackson, is that we bring a certain uh, prior contextualization to our own understanding of the Scripture, or we have a lens our, ourselves through which we read the Bible, and that might color the way uh, the things we pull out of Scripture. And uh, is that what you're saying here? Or yeah, and and hopefully we'll get more into that in a second. Uh, but it's uh, some cultural lens is always influencing us. None of us have an a cultural lens, whether it be a subculture, a macro culture. All of us come from a myriad cultures that uh, help us to notice one thing versus another. But what I think people tend to do who tend to be a little aware of contextualization is they think that they can somehow take off their cultural lens and read the Bible directly. And so there's this seems to be this dichotomy in people's thinking between the Bible and culture. But even on that point, people forget that the Bible itself is full of cultural markers, words, meanings, concepts, whatnot. And so even God himself contextualizes how he reveals himself. Mm -hmm. And so a key issue here is uh, the relationship between Bible and culture. Right. One of the most interesting, simple examples of this, I think, is the reading of the Samaritan woman. And I think typically as a Western believer, we walk into that story and we think, oh, well, she's married, divorced, married, divorced, married, you know, multiple times. And so we make assumptions about who she is because of that. And I have read and talked to some people, for example, a woman who worked with uh, in Bangladesh, and she's doing a, a Bible study with some women, and they went, oh, it's so clear that she, the Samaritan woman is barren. She can't have children. Mm. And to them, it seemed very obvious. Mm. And then another person who was working with some women in Africa, and they said, oh, well, she clearly keeps marrying older men because they were the established men within the village. Mm. And so then they keep dying. Well, so you're going to make assumptions about who the Samaritan woman is based on these cultural lenses, and none of those are a heretical reading of the, of the story. But very easily as a Westerner, I can come in and say, well, this is what the story means. But I think what you're getting at is in order to get a real holistic view and understanding of Scripture and then these stories specifically, we need the lens and the worldview of brothers and sisters globally. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and I think to be able to appreciate the contribution of others on our theologizing and strategizing and whatnot is to simply realize that we are just like those in Africa or uh, South Asia or wherever else, and we are seeing things because of our cultural background, our subcultural background, and we are making assumptions where the Bible is not overt and explicit. Mm -hmm. um, Brennan O'Brien and Randy Richards' book on misreading scripture with Western eyes just lays this out so perfectly in so many different ways. One mm -hmm. of the easiest examples is 
where people in the West assume that prohibitions of wearing jewelry or adornment or whatever else had to do with being sexually provocative, whereas in its original context, it would be far more a sign of wealth and, mm-hmm. and showing off you know, your status and whatnot. And you say, well, that doesn't sound right. Well, who says because of your cultural context? Right. Um, we just have to be honest that culture does affect uh, our theologizing and consequently our contextualizing. So at, at the heart of this, we have to ask ourselves, what's the relationship between Bible and culture? And a lot of conservative evangelicals will really try to separate the two. There's culture and it's put in the bad category. And, the, and then there's the Bible and it's the good category. And what they're afraid of is, um, you know, syncretism mm-hmm. is that somehow or another, the two will be blended and so anytime you talk about, yes, the culture affects our theology, people think that you are just saying, well, they're indistinguishable, uh, fatalistic, let's just give up, and then they're afraid of making like, culture trump the Bible. It seems like in order to really understand the Bible, don't most hermeneutics uh, texts where, you know, when people go to seminary, if they read a hermeneutics, a hermeneutics textbook— won't that hermeneutics textbook say that we need to understand the cultural context in order to properly mm. interpret Scripture? Absolutely. But they, what they don't address is the fact that we all bring a lens to the Bible. Ah, okay. That is very rarely uh, addressed with any, with any depth. And even if it is mentioned, it's usually in passing because there's very little out there to help people— identify their lens and identify what they're bringing to the text. And then once, if they even do that to say, well, where might we need to rethink some of our theology, uh, some of our ways of thinking, because when you have this binary, good, bad Bible culture, whatnot, then people will feel threatened that, Oh, if you're saying that my culture is affecting my reading, well then are you saying that everything I've been thinking is wrong Mm -hmm. as if it, Right. You have to throw everything out if it's, it has any right. influence of culture. Yeah. Well, our culture can help us to see things that we might otherwise miss. You know, but their fear is syncretism. Mm-hmm. And syncretism, uh, I think the way I define it in my book is um, it's whenever the biblical message is made to harmonize so closely with uh, a culture, a given culture, that the biblical truth is compromised. You know, in so many words where the Bible gets confused with uh, non-biblical elements of culture. Mm -hmm. So can you give an example of syncretism that, you know, some people in the missions world or in evangelical Christianity might be familiar with? Well, you could—there's different versions that you could have it. Somebody might think that the worship, not just the veneration or the honoring of ancestors, but the worship of ancestors— they might uh, use the Bible to defend that practice. Um, I've heard instances where someone thought that Christians in the Middle East should pray towards Jerusalem in the same way that Muslims pray towards Mecca as if God were commanding that. You know, there, there's different kind of different things where at different degrees of syncretism mm-hmm. that's there. And I would call that cultural syncretism. Okay. Where our theologizing, where our theology is harmonizing with the surrounding culture in a way that uh, goes outside the bounds of Scripture. Now, that reminds me that here in America, it seems like syncretism is alive and well in the church when we mix consumerism and evangelicalism. 
You know, mm. I mean, doesn't that sometimes show up in the pros- prosperity gospel yeah. and yeah. that yeah. sort of thing? Yeah. And would the, you call that uh, syncretism? Yeah, that would be a cultural syncretism, the prosperity gospel. Uh, another form that's more subtle is uh, entertainment-driven church models. In the name of quality, there's oftentimes a show and and whatnot where they're trying to compete with the entertainment industry mm. and uh, worship is a worship services are more of a production. So that's where you start getting some syncretistic elements. And to say that there are syncretistic elements does not mean that the church is apostate and entirely compromised. The truth is that probably every church in every time and place has had degrees of syncretism in some way or another. Um, so we're not trying to throw everyone on the bus. We're trying to be honest with the fact that these dynamics are there. Yeah. yeah I think it's tempting to think that syncretism only happens outside of the West, right? We think of that as kind of a, a missions thing, yeah, you know? For sure. And, and even yeah. that very idea is syncretistic because what it does is it identifies Western culture with Christianity. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I've, we, I know I struggled a lot with that when we would v- come and visit the States and we happened to go to church on the 4th of July. We really struggled with that because there was so much you know, national worship. And I mean, you know, singing the national anthem and Sunday morning, I just remember thinking, if any of my Chinese brothers and sisters walked in right now, they would not know what to think. Yeah, they would not be happy. (laughs) That reminds me one time at our church, uh, this was uh, in a prior place where we resided, we, we went to church and they had a color guard uh, military color guard, and they oh, had wow. r- they had rifles. <laughs> they came in, and of course, it was a uh, it was either Memorial Day or July Fourth, yeah. you know, in, uh, Independence Day. And for me, it was extremely uncomfortable because of my German family heritage mm. and the fact that my father was a German soldier in the in the army uh, in World War Two. And the whole dynamic of German nationalism, of yeah. course, became a source of horrendous, you know, horrendous evil uh, with the Nazi government and, and, and nationalism and, and how the church tried to accommodate the National Socialist Party mm-hmm. in Germany at the time. Uh, there, was a, there was an actual church organization called the, the German I think it was called the German Christians uh, group where they created theology in support of uh, Hitler's government. Mm. And it was one of the most evil things to uh, learn about. Mm. There's a book called The Aryan Jesus, A-R-Y-A-N, and it documents, you know, the Germans are great at documentation. (laughs) And she did all Mm. kinds of research. And it's just astounding to see how much... Mm syncretism happened yeah. in Germany. Yeah. And uh, so this, you know, to see military and, you know, soldiers with guns in a North American, you know, American worship service, I, you know, I had to walk out. I, yeah. I could not, I couldn't handle yeah. it. Syncretism, like, for example, even in that case, syncretism has this core good aspect to it that's taken, you know, way, way too far. Like, for example, love of country. Yes, yeah, yes. I find a love country, but then it becomes the dominant force. And that's what right. we need to look at is the, when you see or you suspect things of syncretism, 
go, okay, what's the good part here? What's Where is some truth here so that it's we don't overreact and just throw everything out and close our ears? Yeah, that's a good point. Mm-hmm. I mean, there is a sense in which uh, we want to be good citizens, right? Yeah. We want to be uh, respected in our community. We want to be good neighbors yeah. and uh, we want to cheer for our country in the Olympics, mm-hmm. you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> that's good and natural. Uh, and but that can also become a dominant form or a part of our own identity where it becomes, uh, shall I say, idolatrous. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. And again, idolatry is usually uh, the, the idol is some good thing that's been valued too much. So it's very consistent with, with, uh, with what we're seeing with syncretism. Yeah. And ultimately, I think, is the core behind why contextualization makes us nervous, Mm. you know, because we are leading with a lot of confidence momentum Mm. (laughs) as Westerners, you know, and we have resources just in abundance. So we walk into cultural situations and we assume we are kind of the starting ground. We're Mm. the starting place. And so that's, I think, a lot of the fear of contextualization is that ultimately we kind of think we know better. Mm. And that. Well, there's a lot of that, for sure. There's a lot of that. And I know we've talked about there's this assumption that, you know, we, especially the, the white American community, Christian community, we have theology. And then there's Chinese theology, there's, you know, Kenyan theology, there's Russian theology, but we are just pure theology. Yeah. We're the objective ones. <laughs> we are the objective. Right, right, yeah. right. Right. Yeah. So, so when, as soon as you start talking about contextualization, it's seen as something of a threat that's dangerous or bad or, right. or, or whatnot because that's going to imply that there's going to be a change yeah. or needs to be a change. There's one other type of syncretism that I think is overlooked a ton. And some people have objected to me using this term, but I would say that a second type of syncretism is theological syncretism. And by that, uh, it's like the opposite direction of cultural syncretism, whereas cultural syncretism basically welcomes too much into the theology. It it brings in the Bible. I mean, it brings culture into the Bible. Theological syncretism makes the box too small and functionally reduces – Biblical revelation at a practical level to one's tradition, and everything else gets minimized. And your your high points of the of your tradition become the litmus test for everything else, and the lens through which you look at everything else. So, people are far more unwill unwittingly they're far more tolerant of theological syncretism than they are cultural syncretism. But the truth is, I think even theological syncretism, if you go back in history, in any theological syncretism, it's going to be have some cultural syncretism in history. It may have been, mm-hmm. say, two or 300 years ago where the culture really affected the church, and then it becomes tradition, mm-hmm. and then that comes theological syncretism. But whether we allow too much into our, our Bible, into our theological thinking, or we restrict it too much, either one is not revering Scripture. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Can you give us an example of theological syncretism? 
One uh, example would be to reduce everything uh, about the gospel to, say, justification by faith, where everything is filtered through that. And if you don't emphasize that above everything else, then you are compromising. But forgetting the fact that justification by faith is largely only talked about, largely only talked about in two books, Romans and Galatians. Mm -hmm. And yet those two books have had such uh, extraordinary influence on Western theological thinking that uh, everything else is seen as kind of a secondary way of, of talking about it. And so do theological syncretism is not to say that you're anti-Bible or whatever else. It just means that the Bible at a practical level becomes too small. Mm. It's reductionistic instead of too expansive, in other words. Right, right. Uh, and in fact, and then what ends up happening is people become suspicious when you emphasize other themes found in the Bible and then becomes kind of weird or or they put out some other demurring label uh, on you. So I think these having a these cultural assumptions, these lens, uh, subcultural lens, really gets in the way of good contextualization. So I propose a broader definition of contextualization. Okay, let's hear it. <laughs> okay, I I would argue that contextualization begins with interpretation. So I've argued that in One Gospel for All Nations, that contextualization is the process where we interpret, apply, and communicate biblical truth for a given cultural context. And what I'm trying to do in arguing for that view of contextualization is to say that all theology is contextualized, and, the, and even the Bible itself is contextualized in terms of God used different cultural concepts and ideas— to reveal himself in his will. And so it's not, it's not that we have some abstraction, abstract principles uh, that we are now, let's, let's, how does this apply to this context? No, we have to interpret something in context. Our lens is affecting what it is that we're seeing when we look at the Bible. And so already there's uh, an interaction between our assumptions and what we're seeing in the Bible. Okay, so when you say contextualization begins with interpretation, that is different from the conventional view that says you do interpretation first and then you contextualize. Yes. Okay. But it's impossible. It is impossible to read the Bible without a cultural lens. And when you have that cultural lens, again, it's this, to say you have a cultural lens to me is not a, a cuss word or not a, an insult. It just... <laughs> is we all have a life experience that helps us to see things, not to see things, to ask certain questions, not even think about asking other questions. So, for example, if you're interpreting, uh, let's say you're starting with Ephesians chapter 1, and uh, it says, To the saints who are at Ephesus, grace and peace to you uh, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're interpreting Scripture there and you're looking at the Greek, if you start with interpretation— you are intentionally being mindful as a Westerner that that um, you will more likely interpret this as an individual than as part of a community. Mm -hmm. So it's being aware of that individualistic lens and just sort of being in dialogue with mm -hmm. that. Say, okay, I can't just look at this as an individual. Yeah. I need to look at this as though I'm part of a church community that Paul is writing to. Yeah, I, I saw this 
so clearly when we first got to China. Mm. And I was trying to explain the concept of grace. And I kept saying, I had a few friends in particular, I kept saying, it's free. It's free. There are zero th- strings attached. So when you come over to my house for dinner, I don't expect anything from you. <laughs> and they yeah. would come back just, I might as well have been speaking Russian because yeah. they did not understand the concept of this free gift. Yeah. Now, I thought, oh, it's just because they don't understand God like I do. That was my assumption, right? <laughs> but what happened is the longer I got to know them is that I was giving them a version of grace that did not knit us together in relationship. Mm-hmm. And so they were saying, no, no, we want grace where you give us a gift and then we give you a gift. Yeah. And it, instead of severing the ties, it actually m- makes more ties. Yeah, it's actually more honoring to your guests Absolutely. when they can participate in a reciprocal way to return honor yes. to you. And or, it tied yeah. us together. It added strings. Mm, but yeah. to them, that, what a loving God mm-hmm. that we could have this mutual exchange from one another that's not going to abandon me won't just give me a gift and walk away. Right. And it was, that just blew my mind when I started to understand just grace, you know, that, yeah, the whole individual versus communal understanding you know, of grace. What's funny about that, it's actually hilarious the more I think about it, <laughs> is that they are articulating at a gut level what John Barclay said in this book called Paul and the Gift, which has been many have called the most revolutionary book in New Testament studies over the past 30, 40 years. And yet that's just like, duh, no kidding for many of these Chinese believers. And just imagine if we had a Chinese lens, what kind of questions we might be asking if we are reading the Bible and we see these aspects of grace, we see a far more rich, robust aspect of grace rather than maybe a one-dimensional part of grace that is inherited from tradition. So to talk about contextualizing as beginning with reading the Bible through a lens is not to say throw out old lenses. It's rather to enlarge the lens. I I learned a word recently. What was the word? Fructometer, I think is the word I learned where it's, (laughs) yeah, I I learned this from uh, uh, Brandon O'Brien. I was talking to him uh, recently. And and, uh, so I give him credit for this. Uh, It's those machines that when you go to the eye doctor and you put your eye against it and they say, is this clear? Is it one or two? Is that clear or is that clear? Was it one or two? And then eventually you get your prescription after all these back and forth checks. That's essentially what we're doing is we're putting on these various cultural lenses over others, over others, so we get more and more clarity in what we see and don't see. Yeah, and I really like that because... I think this whole process of uh, contextualization, it does suggest that there's a conversation. Yeah, yeah. You know, there's a conversation between us and the text, us and the culture that's in the scriptures and to which the Bible was written, and then and a conversation with ourselves about our own cultural context. Mm-hmm. Like, this is an ongoing thing. And rather than being afraid of contextualization, like somehow this is going to make us less objective or less confident in Mm. what we're preaching and teaching uh, from the Bible. Uh, Maybe it's our attempt to uh, just get 
as close as possible to the original intent of the of the original authors of of scripture. You know, right. we may not ever get there exactly, yeah. but we're moving in that direction. Well, this brings up the question that I sometimes get asked when I talk about this: is people say who cares about our cultural lens? We have documents from the first and second century that tell us the context. So who cares about our context? That gives us the lens we need. And my response is, guess what? We still have to read those documents with our eyes, with our lens. So we're still going to notice certain things, overlook certain things, ask certain questions of the text, not ask other ones we should be asking, even if it we're reading first and second century documents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think that's in your definition of contextualization. That's, I imagine, why you use the word process. Yes. Right? Yes. Yeah. It, it's, it's not a formulaic thing, yeah. which also stresses people out. Right. Say, aren't you aren't you making this a bit complicated? Uh, and so that I think that sometimes demotivates people because they want a very simple process. Yeah, but it's in acknowledging that it's complicated, we are also saying that it's possible through study, the studying the original context of the social context, through being aware of our own cultural lenses, mm-hmm. we can have greater and greater confidence mm. In what we believe is the interpretation of Scripture. Mm. It's yeah. not like we're getting that we want to move away from confidence. We want to move right, toward right. confidence yeah. so that we can say, thus saith the Lord in in our preaching and teaching. And, and I just think that's yeah. our intent here, I think, is to be optimistic. Right, you know right, what I mean? Right. Yeah. yeah. Like, and I wouldn't say ever that we, we need to have this culture's lens as opposed to that culture's lens because all have blind spots, but the broader perspective and multiple lenses we have, the more opportunities we have to see things and not overlook other things. I really appreciate you saying that, Jackson, because I've heard you say on numerous occasions, uh, let's not bash Western theology too much, you know what I mean? Because I think there's a tendency just to, you know, look at all things American as being negative or you know, to have the sort of elite view that, oh, Westerners are, you know, responsible for, you know, oppression everywhere and this and that. And, you know, we're imposing things on the rest of the world. I, you know, there's a, there's some truth to that, but there's also tremendous value and benefit in what Western theology has given the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've been scratching my head over the past year or so since I've had to relocate to the United States. When I was talking to missionaries all the time, and to Chinese as well, I would constantly have to advocate for the fact that Western theology is not complete. It it needs the global church, and you know, Chinese and Thai and every other culture has something to contribute to our lens. And since being in America, I find kind of funny enough the opposite, where American Christians almost see a lot of American Christians. I should say not all, of course, that. See, Western almost is a cuss word. Yeah. You know, oh, we're Western imperialists and this and that. And I'm like, well, hold on, hold on. It, it, this binary thinking is yeah. is really right. getting us in trouble. It's not an either or. It's a both and. And even if you say, okay, Western theology has its problems, that doesn't make it entirely wrong. And it could be that that idea is true, but maybe not as emphasized in the text as, as maybe you're emphasizing. Mm-hmm. People have noticed this dynamic of, 
uh, interpretation and contextualization. And one of the methods that people have tried to use to compensate uh, is called ethnohermeneutics. In mission circles, it, it, it's often used. And, and this would be, since we're often talking about the intersection between missions and theology, I'd want to mention this because if someone goes and starts kind of Googling some of this stuff, they might come across ethnohermeneutics. And I find a lot of its main proponents, their solution is problematic, even though they're getting the idea. Because what they will say is, well, we need to use the interpretive methods of these various cultures to interpret the Bible. And that is not what I'm saying, Mm -hmm. because we need to use interpretive methods that fit with the genre and the context that we're reading. So I'm not going to read poetry the same way as I will an epistle or history or whatever else. All I'm saying is that as we become more familiar with a culture and understand its context and cultural values, whatnot, we're going to become more sensitive to different things that the text is saying because there may be some cultural affinities between the ancient world and theirs or ours. I'll just say this. One of my favorite quotes comes from a uh, a scholar who I disagree with on so many things, uh, but on this he's, he's spot on. He says, a multicultural perspective is more objective than a monocultural perspective. And the idea being is that the more cultural lenses you're able to bring to the text, the more they can challenge and correct and supplement one another. Mm -hmm. But so oftentimes in our fear of something different than our subculture or tradition, we want to close ourselves off because what if we say something wrong? And I want to say... Well, what if we're missing out on so much where the Bible is because we're not reading the Bible with broader lenses? Mm-hmm. So that's where I would say contextualization begins. It begins with interpretation. And if you're not doing that, realizing that, then what you're essentially doing is you're contextualizing a contextualization because you, the theology we inherit is a contextualization for various parts of Western culture. And then what ends up happening is that we force people outside the West to become a bit more Western in order to be Christian. I think one of the difficult things, and this would be a question maybe for you guys, is that when people, you know, if they say, okay, I'm, I'm on board for contextualization, I get it, I, I, want, it, I want to be diligent about learning, um, is just when, when we think about talking about the gospel with people and we think— what am I supposed to say now? Because <laughs> mm. I've got all of these ideas of things I could say. So would you say, okay, yes, there are some pillars that we need to make sure there in order to build this house. Mm. Um, or, you know, Jackson, you were saying earlier that justification by faith is, is a pillar that most people put in the house, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And would you say, yes, there are some pillars we need to remain there. Or would you say there's some flexibility? There's some wood, hammer and nails, and then you figure out how to build the house in the context that you're in. <laughs> Go. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is this point, this tension point is really what motivated me early on to start thinking through contextualization because I would read these books on contextualization and I'd see these principles, but no one is ever saying, how do you do it? Right, right. And then I would read the Bible and Paul talks about there's only one gospel. But when you read all these various texts that talk about the gospel, I mean, they sound so different that you really struggle to figure out what they have in common. They really do seem like different gospels. Uh, And so 
you know, I, I kept wondering, how do you, yeah. Not to mention the fact that there are four books of the Bible called the gospel right. yeah. according to, yeah. you know, Matthew, right. Mark, Luke, and John. Like, how do you reconcile that? Right. Absolutely. And then there's the perennial debate that people have asked, well, is the gospel of Paul the same as the gospel of Jesus? And because. Mm-hmm. These books are explicitly called the gospel. Like Mark opens, called it his book. This is the beginning of the gospel, and the church fathers called these the gospels, or the, or the gospel. And you have to go. Well, this doesn't look like any tract, gospel tract you receive in some missionary training or whatever. Mm-hmm. So what? There's not like four or five rules here. It's the story of Jesus' life and then of his death and resurrection. You go, huh? Right. So as I was wrestling with all of this, I thought, okay, well, whatever approach we come up with, it needs to be firm so that it reflects that there's one gospel. But there obviously needs to be this flexibility as a, you know, so as to be able to accommodate these various components. And so firmness and flexibility is key to any method of contextualization. But in order to do that, we have to interpret the Bible in such a way so as to see what parts are firm? I'm not saying true or untrue, but what are the consistent themes and motifs here? Uh, and then what are the things that come and go? They're not always emphasized. And so maybe like a house, you have the frame and the foundation, and that's the firm part. But then you kind of build out the house in all sorts of different ways. And there's not one way it's inherently better or worse, but things you may see in the bedroom are a little bit different than the kitchen and in the bathroom. But they're all absolutely valuable to the house. So... What would you say are those things that are firm in the gospel? Well, in One Gospel for All Nations, I unpack this a little bit to say that there are three themes that are consistently present wherever the gospel is explicitly preached. There's this idea of that God is the creator, and there's a lot of things that are tied in with that. Uh, this theme of covenant and kingdom. So creation, covenant, and kingdom are... One of one, at least one of those, was always there where the gospel is explicitly talked about. That right there defines the storyline of the Bible, and every other concept that we usually relate to gospel presentations fits within the context of creation, covenant, and kingdom. But again, that's I guess that's you know we we could have not, a whole other conversation. Yeah, on that. I'm not sure that that's what I would call a pillar as much as a framework. You know, mm. for for the gospel presentation, like mm. here's the frame. That mm. frame can be made of wood, it can be made of aluminum, mm. or it could be made of platinum or something. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but inside that frame, there are, there are the, you know, what we would call these pillars. So, mm. okay. for example, like, you know, Jesus Christ. Yes. Would be... Yes. And, 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 that's, and part of me is uh, uh, suffering from the curse of knowledge, because when I say the uh, creation, covenant, kingdom, I have Jesus all like when I say that I have Jesus all within that, and so uh, to kind of put it even more plain language, you have everything goes towards, stems out of, rotates around Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. Mm-hmm. That's why the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John can be called the gospel because that's exactly what they cover. But typically, what we say or mean when we say, "Oh, this is the gospel," we're usually talking about some of the theological implications mm-hmm. of that. Um, so the gospel is a lot, a lot bigger. And for each of those writers, they contextualize it for their audience. Mm-hmm. I know that we're running out of time. And if I can maybe give it uh, an analogy or story, redeem an analogy or uh, that I heard from Leslie Newbigin that we're familiar with. 
We've all heard the an illustration of the blind men who are touching the elephant. And the way it's frequently used is to say, you know, all truth is relative. You know, somebody thinks that the, the elephant is like a snake if they touch the tail. Or maybe it's, you know, like a wall if they're touching the side. And maybe it's like a who knows whatever else if they're touching the ear or the nose. And so people oftentimes use that that analogy as kind of a weapon against a- absolute or objective truth, whatnot. Well, Leslie Newbegin made some good observations, and essentially he says this. Everybody's touching different parts of the elephant, but guess what? They're still touching the same elephant. I mean, there is an objective truth that they're all stumbling upon. Mm -hmm. And I would say we need to think maybe contextualization along those lines, that each of those blind men are interpreting elephant, that is, I would say here, the Bible, in various ways that are true. Mm -hmm. But... Each of us, as we try to interpret and contextualize, we, we are bound by what the Scripture says. I mean, there's only so much, so much of an elephant's skin or a body that you're not going to confuse it for a jellyfish or, mm-hmm. or a fluffy pillow or whatever else. I mean, there are limits, right? And if we would just get to talking, if the blind men would just talk to each other, then we could get a better picture of what it is that we are interpreting and feeling. And, and that's what contextualization can do. If we will just talk to each other, mm-hmm. then we can get a, a more robust picture of what the Bible is actually saying. Yeah, that's really great. Yeah. Can I give an example of how we're doing that? Yeah. So I'm involved with this Ephesians 2 Gospel Project, and one of the things we're doing is we are investigating what the early church fathers uh, how they wrote and processed and thought about uh, Ephesians chapter 2. By the way, we're focused on verses 11 to 22, especially verses 13 to 16, where we have these very dense verses on the atonement of Christ. So we're, we're learning from the early church fathers. Then we're investigating the Greek exegesis and trying to understand the conversations surrounding that. And then we're also trying to learn from people from other traditions. Like, uh, I'm going to be talking with a friend of mine who's Greek Orthodox, and I want to ask him, what is your perspective on this text? Mm. And furthermore, at Mission One, we have numerous uh, partners in the uh, majority world, in Africa, Asia, and the Middle East, and we want to get their insight on how they see Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, especially those verses 13 to 16 on the atonement of Christ and how it it kills the hostility between Jew and Gentile, by extension, other peoples in conflict. Uh, what do they think? How do they see it? And I think the, uh, the hoped-for goal is to get this consensus, you know, to get multiple perspectives, both historically and con- you know, contemporarily, and uh, from people in other traditions, and uh, so that we can have greater confidence about the significance of the text. Okay, so I'll play the role of concerned listener okay. who hears what you say and thinks, well, this is kind of scary. Are you saying that all these people should have equal weight in what you write, that just because they are from you know, Lebanon or pick your place, that their views are just automatically right because it's different than ours? No, no, we're not saying that. We're we're saying that we want to hear other people, but we will always place the greatest emphasis on the text and the interpretation of the text. So that's why the Greek exegesis part mm-hmm. is so significant. Mm-hmm. And we want to get multiple scholars to, to 
give insight onto their interpretation of that. Uh, but we also want to hear what the church fathers have said, and that's why we're very interested in their perspective because they're closest to the time of Christ. You know, Gregory of Nyssa, I mean, his language was, you know, Koine Greek, so he's not interpreting the Greek. He's mm. he, That's the language he's of, of his using, life, yeah. Yeah. And so, preaching and teaching. So you said it, but I just want to draw it up more explicitly. I'll yes. ask one more—I'll play the role one more time of concerned listener. Yeah. You talked about the exegesis of the text is most important, but you want to get other people's views. Somebody might say, well, just interpret the text. Who cares what these other views are? Just interpret the Bible. You don't need all these different views from people around the world. Yeah. I, one of the things that we hope to do is to say, okay, here's some quotes from Gregory of Nyssa, for example. Mm-hmm. And then the way they look at the death of—he looked at the death of Christ and the significance of the atonement— relative to the unity of the body of Christ and being against division in the in the body of Christ and then to allow you know other individuals from around the world to react to mm. that mm. Uh, so we're not just we're we're trying to really develop this conversation and to see how different people in different social contexts mm. uh, and cultural contexts would apply the passage and see how it relates to their own church communities. Yeah, and what they notice in the text and don't. So and, sure. and in fact, what you seem to be doing is broadening what people, what the average pastor does every Sunday or where they prepare a sermon, they read a couple of commentaries, whatever else, and then they kind of put these com- commentaries in conversation and then they go, okay, this is what I think the meaning is. It seems like you're doing the same thing, but you're doing it across history and across the globe. Yeah, and there's a reason for that, which is that this passage about the cross and the atonement of Christ, Ephesians 2, 13 to 16, is significantly underrepresented in the doctrine of the atonement. Mm. Uh, in, in Reformed theology, for example, there's many systematic textbooks uh, that just give very scant recognition to the significance of this passage. Mm. And so... Uh, that's the reason why we want to yeah. do a really good mm-hmm. job, and because mm-hmm. we want to understand why that might be the case. Right. And, right. Um, so to get a more robust interpretation will enable you to communicate and apply a more biblically faithful and culturally meaningful message. Biblically faithful and culturally meaningful. That is what we are heading for, always. That's good. Well, any other comments, Carrie or Jackson? <laughs> I'm good. I've talked yeah. a lot. Uh, I, I hope. I think we are planning, perhaps, on doing a future podcast where we can try to give an example of what this looks like in in, in a specific context, just to help it come down to the ground level a little bit. So I look forward to that. Well, thank you so much for joining us today for another episode of Doing Theology, Thinking Mission.